too bad. Good morning, guys. Couple of a uh, couple of announcements, real quick, before we get into the word. Well, just one, really, actually. Um, really encourage you guys. Um, I know we've been harping on this for a while now, but um, we're getting ready in October to start our home fellowships. So encourage you guys to make sure if you um, are planning on attending. Please contact Jen, get on the list, and um, I would hate to see the ground open up and swallow you guys because you refused to sign up. So, uh, that was a joke. That was a joke. Brian was looking at me like he was, he was worried about it. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, just make, it's just such a great time for us to connect to one another and um, just form relationships and, and get to know each other and sort of develop that, um, that, um, just that network that we need. So often, so many people come to church, and um, they're just in and out. And there's not a lot of deep relationships that are formed. And, and that shouldn't be in the body of Christ. You know, we need one another. We need to be able to encourage one another and build each other up. And, um, and that happens through time, building relationships. So again, just encourage you guys to connect to one another. Let's pray before we get started. Heavenly Father, we just... Um, we come before you this morning, Lord, and we just ask for your, just for your presence, Lord, for your touch. We pray that you would be in our midst this morning as we open up this passage. And Lord, there's some, some hard truths and some great encouragements there. And we pray that you would just help us to receive whatever it is that you have for us. We pray that in your name. So we're continuing this morning in Acts chapter 8. Um, remember last week we kind of took a little break and kind of looked at some, um, some periphery issues regarding Acts chapter 8. We're back to it this morning. And um, remember as we, as we finished up chapter 7 and, and began to open chapter 8, we began to see this first real wave of persecution that struck the church. And as we shared a while ago, it, it started the day that Stephen was martyred, and it's never stopped. This persecution has been <clears throat> pushing back against the church from, from almost from day one. And so remember, we found Saul. He went before the, um, the Sanhedrin and the high priest, and he got letters of, of approval, and, and he went from town to town. And he was going home to home looking for believers. And he's arresting believers. He's He's breaking up home churches. He's breaking up home fellowships. And he's, and, and he's hauling them off to jail. These are people who decided that they were going to gather and worship together no matter what their leaders told them. They, they purpose in their heart that they are Christians above all else. And because of that, we find this early church, they're being, they're being hunted down. They're being imprisoned. They're being abused. They're, they're losing their property. <coughs> as we said, some are facing death. And so as this begins to happen, remember, much of the church just kind of scatters into the wind. We find that, that some of the believers and the apostles stayed in Jerusalem 
But a lot of other people began to disperse and leave the city as this, as this persecution started. And, and, and to be fair, remember at this point, a lot of the believers in Jerusalem aren't from Jerusalem. Right? A lot of the believers, they were there during Pentecost, they got saved, and they just kind of stayed. So as this persecution starts up, it just kind of made sense, and, and, they, and they started to go home. And this is when we pick up the text in verse 4. It says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. I love this verse. It's really one of those... Romans 8.28 kind of verses. You know, Romans 8.28 says that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purposes. Right? And, and what that talks about is, is the sovereignty of God. That He is always in control of all things at all times. <clears throat> and as we look at verse 4, of course we know that the Lord didn't cause this persecution to happen. But in his sovereignty and in his omniscience, he allows this persecution to transpire. And we have to ask ourselves, I think, why would a loving God allow this to happen? Why would a loving God allow his children to be arrested and imprisoned and tortured and murdered? And I think that there's a couple reasons why. First, and I know we've talked about this before, but we're going to continue to talk about it. Historically, the church always grows in times of tribulation. The church always grows in times of persecution. And I know that that seems counterintuitive, but look at China today. There are an estimated 100 million believers in China today. Do you know that when the Communist Party took over and they tried to stamp out the church in China, there was almost no church there. It was teeny. But as they continue to attack the church and persecute the church, what's happened? The church is just exploding over there. And whenever there's external pressure, the church is strengthened, and it's purified. And you would think that the opposite would be true, wouldn't you? You would think that the threat of prison and the threat of death would stop people from going to church. You know, and many, many leaders have thought the exact same thing. They've thought, you know, we don't like the church. We don't like the influence it's having on our country. We're going to we're going to stamp it out. We're going to, we'll kill a few of them, and then everybody else is going to kind of figure it out, and they're going to they're gonna back away from this thing. But that never works, does it? It never works. Whenever a hard times come, the Lord uses that to bring purity and to bring refinement and to bring growth to the church. And the second thing that happens is it is sort of, it weeds out the uncommitted, doesn't it? Right? If you know that showing up to church on Sunday could mean you're going to prison or lose your job or possibly taken out and put up against the wall and shot or, as they did in Roman times, crucified you and poured pitch on you and lit you on fire, my gosh, 
do need to cut the grass today. <laughs> the uncommitted find reasons not to be there. And as we see here, as persecution came, the disciples began to disperse. And look what happened. Everywhere they went, they became missionaries. Everywhere they went, they took the gospel message with them. And we need to remember something. And I know that as I say this, it's really going to shock a lot of you guys. It's going to be like this big epiphany. A lot of you guys have never realized this before. But the Lord's primary concern isn't your personal comfort. I don't know if you guys are aware of that or not. <laughs> yeah, thank you. you know, she, she made the noise, but a lot of us, what? That's true. His primary concern isn't our personal comfort. His primary concern isn't making sure that, that your feathers never get ruffled. And that's not to say, of course, that he doesn't care about what's going on in our lives. We know that he does. We know that he, he knows the details of our life and that he cares about what happens. What I'm saying is that the Lord's primary concern is for our eternal well-being. His primary concern is to see the kingdom of God expanded. A, a primary concern is, is the salvation of lost souls. And if our trials and our hard times allow that to happen, the Lord will allow us to go through difficult times. If a, if a season of, of persecution will, will, will result in the salvation of lost men, well, get ready for it. That's what's going to happen. And so many times, church, we get so focused on, on the present. We get so focused on, on where we are. We get so focused on, on the temporal. When the Lord is looking at the eternal picture. The Lord is concerned with the big picture. And sometimes he allows persecution to happen because he knows that it will cause the gospel to spread. And that's what we see right here. As persecution happened, the, the gospel just went through. And, and I used this analogy last service. It just kind of popped into my mind. You know, I, as little kids, you know, we always love it when, when those dandelions start to die, right? And they turn into those big puff balls. And, and every kid loves grabbing those and blowing on them. And all of a sudden, the seeds go everywhere. That's a, a, a great picture of what happens when, when, in this verse when persecution happens. All of a sudden, as that external force is applied, that seed of the gospel just spreads everywhere. And so all of this in verse 4, it's really a setup for verse 5. Luke kind of tells us that, 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 that everybody's scattered, that the gospel is being spread, and, and he is introducing us to a specific guy here in verse 5 telling us of one of the situations that happened as the people went out. It says that Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. 
Remember, we first met Philip back in chapter 6. Remember, there was that, that dissension when, when the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek-speaking Jews, were accusing the, the Hebrew Jews of, of neglecting the Greek widows. I remember the apostles said, all right, I want you guys to select seven faithful men to oversee the feeding program. I remember we found Philip there as, as one of these seven faithful men. He was one of the guys selected to oversee this program. And here, as the church begins to dissipate, to disperse, we find Philip heading down to Samaria. And here's what's significant about that. And David Guzik notes this. The thing that's significant about Philip going to Samaria is that Samaria was full of Samaritans. Right? It makes sense. Samaria, the Samaritans. But here's the thing. The Jews and the Samaritans, historically, they didn't get along. They didn't like each other. There was a disagreement they had had in times past when, when the Babylonians had um, deported a lot of the Jews and they came back and some of the Jews had stayed and intermixed with some of the people that had come in. And there's this whole, this whole conflict between these two groups of people. And so when we say that the Jews and the Samaritans didn't like each other, that's probably not a strong enough word. They, they hated one another. Samaria was sort of located in, in central Israel. And so if you wanted to travel from, for example, from Jerusalem to Galilee, as Jesus and the disciples often did, right? Samaria was right in the middle. But Mostly Jews, if they had to go from north to south, they would take a detour around Samaria. Remember, they're walking, or they're on donkeys. And taking this detour around Samaria, it added two days of travel time. How much do you have to dislike somebody to walk for two days not to see them? Right? There was a, a strong sense of animosity between, between the 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 Jews and the Samaritans. In fact, if a Jew ended up having to go into Samaria, <coughs> as he was getting ready to leave, they would shake off their robes and shake off their sandals. They would get all the dust off their clothes because they didn't want to defile the Holy Land with dust from Samaria. And so, Philip, he leaves Jerusalem, and we find him going down into Samaria the same area that, that Jesus had gone into and done ministry a couple years earlier. Remember, he met the woman at the well there, and, and, he, and he, he revealed her past to her, and she went, remember, and told the town what happened. So, when Jesus went to Samaria and did ministry there, when he ministered to, to those people, right, it, it raised some eyebrows. People are like, whoa, Jesus, what are you doing? Those, those are our people. They're, they're unclean. And so it's very telling that Philip goes to Samaria here. Presumably at the Lord's leading, right? <clears throat> he goes to Samaria to minister the gospel. And I love this, this, this missionary heart that Philip had. You know the expression, birds of a feather flock together? 
right? And, and that's just kind of human nature, isn't it? We're naturally attracted to people who are like us. And, and so often when it comes to evangelism and sharing the gospel, that, that's kind of how we are. We, we, we share the gospel to, to people who are from our same culture, from our same social group, from our same background. And I think that we see an example here of, of, of breaking that way of thinking. And we need to understand that we need to take the gospel to anyone, to everyone who's willing to receive it. We need to be willing to, to cross cultural lines and to cross party lines and to cross <coughs> racial lines and to cross economic lines. We need to be willing to, to step out of our comfort zone for the sake of the gospel. But you know the thing that the thing with stepping out of our comfort zone is it's uncomfortable. Right? We don't like to do it. But that's what's required. That's what's required of us to spread the gospel. So it says in verse 5 that Philip proclaimed the Christ to them. And I want to note something here. We live in a, in a culture today, in a society today, where by necessity, most churches need a, 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 a paid staff. Wait, the, the reality of church today kind of dictates that. There are aspects of the church that have to be run like a business, right? There has, <coughs> there's taxes that have to get paid. There's, there's books that need to be kept. <coughs> there's um, maintenance of facilities, all kinds of things like that. And so there needs to be a staff. And those things aren't wrong. That's just kind of the result of where we are culturally. But here's the issue. This, this idea develops that, that ministry is for the pastor. That ministry is for the, for the church staff. And that is so wrong. Each one of us as believers, each one of us as disciples of Christ, are, are called to ministry. And, and this word ministry, in, in the Koine Greek, the word is diakonoia. And that word, it means, it means service or, or to be serving. It, it kind of has this idea of, of being on mission. And church, that's what each one of us are called to. And, and we hear this term sometimes, you know, He's, he's called to full-time ministry. And, and I understand what people mean when they say that. I, I get the idea, but that phrase bugs me a little bit. That he's called to full-time ministry like, like all of us aren't. That we're just sort of servants of God on Sundays. You know, we've talked about how that word, that word servant, that word doulos, it means a slave. Someone who is, who is, given up their will, and, and, and their whole purpose is to, is to fulfill the will of another person. Now think about the, the logic of that, saying, you know, I'm, I'm a part-time servant. I'm a part-time slave. You know, my will is not my own on Sundays and Wednesdays sometimes. It just doesn't make sense, does it? 
that we are servants of God all the time. And, and here's what's interesting, and this is important to note. The overwhelming percentage of Christians, they come to faith through personal contact with other Christians. Most people who come to faith, it's not through the efforts of a pastor or a crusade or an evangelist. It's mostly people who interact with them, people in their spheres of influence, right? people that they're together with, sharing the gospel with them. That's how the overwhelming majority of people get saved. And, and we need to remember that. It's my job to share the gospel. It's my job to proclaim the, the good news. But it's no more my job than it's your job. Each one of us are called to be proclaimers of the gospel message. And I was going to make an announcement this morning, but I found that it kind of fit nicely into the message. So I, I'm segueing it into here. You know, we, um, we a couple months ago, we were shut down for a while as a church, you know, and we were, we were doing the online church, and we've started going again, and, and you know, we've been trying to get children's ministry going again and, and looking at getting other things back up. And, and for whatever reason, a lot of people just aren't serving in church. And, and, and our church body is super generous. We, we have made it through this hard time financially a lot better than a lot of other churches have. And, and, and we are super grateful for that. But I have to tell you this, putting money in the basket doesn't relieve you of your calling to serve. And, and if I can be frank with you, I'll tell you this, we're at a point right now in our church where during our staff meetings, we're, we're discussing what Sunday school classes we're going to have to close because there's just nobody to teach them. You know, we're, 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 we're looking at what ministries are going to have to shut down, and it's not because we don't have the desire to do them. It's not because we don't have the resources to do them. It's because people, and by people, guess who I mean? You guys aren't serving in the church. And I don't mean to point my fingers. Some of you guys are. But this should not be a discussion in a church our size. The fact that we don't have people to serve and to do these things, that is an indictment of our church. Am I saying all this to make you feel guilty? A little bit. A little bit. Listen, if you're not called, you're not called. And if you're not called, to serve in children's ministry, the worship team, or whatever, I don't want you doing it. I don't want the wrong people serving. I don't want the wrong people filling positions just because we have a spot and we need somebody. But if you're called, if you're filling the, that, that prompting of the Holy Spirit and you're just resisting it, 
If you're resisting the, the conviction and the leading of the Holy Spirit, that's sin. And you should feel guilty about that. You should feel a little conviction over that. And, and, and to be clear, that conviction can't come from me. You know, the, the pastor says, I should be doing this. The pastor was reprimanding the church, so I need... No. It needs to be a calling from God. And if you don't have that calling, then fine. Don't do it. But if you have that calling, whatever it is, whether it's children's ministry or to be a missionary or, or whatever the Lord's calling you to, if He has put that calling on your life, you need to obey it. You need to do that thing that the Lord is calling you to do. Verse 6. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for the unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. As we just mentioned, Jesus had previously been there. Jesus had had previously proclaimed the kingdom of God. He had ministered to the woman at the well. He had revealed her past. She had gone and told people what happened, and many people believed. Seeds had been planted. And so as Philip goes in and he begins to preach, as he goes in and he begins to proclaim that gospel message, it says that everyone paid careful attention. They were, they were excited to hear this message. This was something new for them. When, when we were in Belize, there was this Mayan village that we would do ministry in sometimes. And um, there's three Mayan groups in Belize, and this particular village was a catchy Mayan village. And um, this village, Dolores, it was very remote. We had to travel four or five hours south into this into the to the furthermost district in Belize, very spot, very sparsely populated. And then once you got there, it was a 40-mile drive out this dirt road that turned into a trail, really, to get to this village called Dolores. And you get out there to Dolores, and, and there's no electricity, and there's no internet, there's no running water, there's no phone service or anything like that. And, and, and it, was, it was like going back in time in a lot of ways. For the most part, people were living like they always had. And the people in the town, you know, in the village, they would go to town from time to time, you know, and they would take their farming goods in there and sell them. Or it was so remote that usually they would sneak across the border into Guatemala to, to go do their grocery shopping. And, and they weren't a Stone Age people by any means. But neither were they a, a modern people. It was, very, it was very National Geographic when you went out to this village. Everyone lived in, in, in one-room huts. They're called palapas with these, with these palm roofs, and um, they had dirt floors, and, and they, they slept in hammocks, and sometimes their livestock slept in there with them. And, and one of the trips out to this village, we, we went and we showed the Jesus film. And, and as you know, the Jesus film, they translate it into a lot of different indigenous languages. And so we had the Jesus film in, in Ketchi Mayan. We went out to the village, and we set up this, this big screen. You know those, uh, have you seen those screens that you can kind of watch from both sides? They're kind of cool. 
And so we set up one of those, and we started playing this the Jesus film. And so, I mean, these people, they, they had seen TV before. It wasn't like it was a shock to them. How, how, how are they trapped in that box? It wasn't like that. But most of them would never have been to a movie theater. None of them had TVs in their house, of course. Right? And so it was definitely a novelty to them. And it was most definitely the first time that they had seen a movie in their own language. And so this Jesus film, it's, it's long. It's like two and a half hours long. And so we started showing it. And we didn't know if people were going to come out and watch it, if they were even going to be interested. And the entire village came out. Like 300 people are there gathered around watching this movie. And, and there was no chairs. Everybody's there's are standing this whole time. And as it's getting towards the end, it starts to rain. Like, shoot, they're going to they're gonna miss the grand finale. Or they're going to miss the whole point of the movie. And I, I'm getting stuff out thinking we're going to have to shut down. Nobody moved. They stood out there watching this movie in the rain, just, just mesmerized by what was going on. And, and, and that's kind of in my mind how I imagine this crowd was with Philip. It says the crowds with one accord paid attention. Everybody is out there just... Their full attention being paid to the the things of God, to the message that that Philip is proclaiming, to the signs and wonders that are being performed. And Luke tells us that that demons were cast out and that the lame were being healed. And then in verse 8, he says, and there was much joy. There was much joy in that city. And I love that. That the people... They hear the gospel message. They learn that Jesus died to pay the penalty of their sin and that he, that he rose again on the third day. They see the power of God manifested through Philip. And there was much joy. That's how it is, isn't it? Remember when you first came to the Lord? When you were first born again? When you were first forgiven and, and given this new life? much joy there was. Can there be anything but joy as we encounter the the richness of God's grace and his mercy? Verse 9, but, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. So Luke says, but there's this one guy. You know, sometimes he's referred to as Simon Magnus, Simon the Magician. And I don't know what kind of a magician he was. I don't know if he was like, you know, a sleight of hand magician. You know, he just practiced card tricks. And, you know, he he would cut the lady in in the box in half. and, And he would do the levitation trick. I don't know if he was always pulling coins out of kids' ears or or he was that kind of a magician, or if he was sort of the same kind of magician we saw in Exodus. Remember, Pharaoh had his magicians. And remember, they could, they could emulate the miracles of God. Remember when Moses threw his staff down on the ground and it became a snake? They did the same thing. So they had some, some legitimate power, these, these magicians. And I don't know if, 
Simon Magnus here, if he was a trickster magician, or if he was a demonic magician, or maybe he was a, a combination of the both. But either way, the people, they were taken with him. They were amazed by the things that he was doing. And we also note that Simon was, was a very self-promoting man. You know, he's kind of going around saying that, that he's the man, that he was a very important person in the region. And verse 10 says that they, the Samaritans, all paid attention to him. From the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time, he had amazed them with his magic. So not only is he practicing magic, but the people are saying, wow, this guy, he's got power. He's got the power of God at his disposal. <clears throat> this man, Simon, he's God's man. He's, he's a, endowed with power from on high. This is a man that God has sent to us. And I don't know if Simon had, had put that idea in their heads or if they just kind of came up with it on our own. But even if they came up with it on their own, Simon didn't put that idea to rest. He, he received their, you know, their adulation. He received their awe and amazement and worship, really. And we learned that this had been going on for a long time. But verse 12, when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So Philip, he preaches the gospel. The kingdom of God is made known. The name of Jesus is proclaimed. People, says both men and women, they believe, they're baptized. And, and Luke notes that even Simon believed and was baptized. And after Simon was baptized, says that he, that he hangs around with Philip. And he's watching all these signs and wonders that Philip is performing. And I think it's sort of a, a professional interest, right? He, he's kind of interested because, because he was sort of in the business, in the miracle business, so to speak. And he sees these guys performing miracles. And he's amazed by the things that he saw, this undeniable work of the Lord. And at this point, things seem like they're going well. People are getting saved. Ministry is taking place. Lives are being changed. Verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So the apostles get wind of what's happening down in Samaria. And they say, Samaria of all places. And so they send Peter and John to, to sort of investigate. Are, are, are the Samaritans really getting saved? Can this really be true? And so Peter and John, they go down, they find out that it's true, and, and they pray for these people. And it says that they receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not fallen on any of them yet. 
Now, for those of you guys who are students of the word, this is a difficult verse. This verse holds a lot of controversy concerning the Holy Spirit and, and what the filling of the Holy Spirit means and, and when it occurs. And, and in this circumstance, it sort of runs contrary to what we usually see transpire in Scripture. And, and, and I don't want to go into a lengthy discussion this morning on, on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But I'll say this. I don't know. I don't know what's happening here. It seems like maybe they hadn't been indwelled with the Holy Spirit yet, as this typically happens at conversion. It may have been a, a, a secondary thing. This may be a reference to the empowering the Holy Spirit, which is a different thing than the filling of the Holy Spirit. But the, the chronology of it, from a theological standpoint, doesn't really make sense. And as I read it, I didn't know what to make of it. So I, you know, I listened to a couple pastors, listened, read some pastors from, from different theological viewpoints, and there's no real consensus. Nobody's really quite sure what's going on in this situation. And I think we just have to accept that, that sometimes the Lord moves in different ways that we don't always understand. And he doesn't always move in the same order that we're used to. But, you know, the, the thing with the Holy Spirit here, it's not really germane to the story at hand. So we're not going to spend a lot of time trying to figure it out and explain it. The point is this. Peter and John came down, and God moved. And the Holy Spirit did something amazing. People were touched. It says that they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. They received the Holy Spirit. In verse 18, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So Simon is watching all of this unfold. He sees the apostles doing this amazing thing. He sees the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit being manifested. He's witnessing miracles. And remember, this is Simon Magnus. This is Simon the magician. He sees all this, and, 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 and he, he wants that. Not because he felt called to minister the gospel. Not because he felt a call to ministry. But I think he wanted it for his own purposes. He wanted to add this to his magic act. Right? People were tired of seeing the, the lady getting cut in half. They'd seen all of his card tricks already. So Simon says, listen, I want, to, I want to buy this power from you. Teach me this trick. Show me how to do this. Here's my, here's my sack of gold. Or as the text says, here's my sack of silver. Give me this power also that an Anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, verse 20, May your silver perish with because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. The message, translation says this, And Peter said, To hell with your money, and you along with it. That's, that's a heavy condemnation, isn't it? 
The point is this. You can never buy your way into the kingdom. You can never buy your way into ministry. There's an actually, there's, a, there's an obscure word, an old English word that, that came from, from this situation here. The word is, is simony. And simony means, it, it refers to the practice of buying or selling ecclesiastical privileges. Basically, simony is buying a position in the church. And that was very common in, in sort of the dark ages before the Reformation. You could buy a position as a, as a bishop in the church. Or you could buy a position or, or whatever. Or, or you know, as, your, as your son was coming of age, you could, if you wanted to and you were rich, you could buy him an ecclesiastical position. And, and we know that that's contrary to what the scripture teaches, right? The Lord says in Isaiah 55.1, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, you, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. And, and what the Lord is saying is this, the things of God are priceless. The things of God are, are spiritual, and, and they're far too valuable to be purchased by physical means. But they're freely given to anyone who will receive them in humility. And I think we all understand that, right? We all understand that we can't buy a position in church. That we can't, there's no eBay auction for spiritual gifts. We can't buy indulgences like, like they used to sell. But, and don't raise your hand. How many of you guys have ever felt guilty about something you did, so you put a little extra in the offering now? Just to kind of soften the edges with the Lord, you know? And that's kind of what's going on here. And Peter tells Simon the magician, to hell with your money, and you along with it. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before the Lord. It seems pretty clear here that Simon probably isn't saved. He had made a profession of faith. He'd said all the right things. He's hanging out with believers. He even went down to the water. He went and got himself baptized. But it doesn't appear that there was ever anything internal that took place. Nothing spiritual took place. There was no regeneration that took place. He was never born again. He wasn't, he wasn't reborn. He was just reformed temporarily. And the Bible talks about having a contrite heart. The psalmist David says this, Psalm 51, 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. What David is saying is the Lord is looking for people whose hearts are broken over their sin. There's another word, another theological word that's not in common usage today. And the word is attrition. 
And we use the word attrition. We know what the word attrition means. You talk about, you know, a, a war of attrition, right? And attrition means to slowly wear something down. But this word attrition, it's a different word. It's spelled the same. It's pronounced the same, but has a different root and a different meaning. And, and, and this word, it, it speaks of, of being sorry for your sin, but being sorry because you got caught. Where contrition be, means being sorry for what you did. This word attrition means being sorry that you got caught doing what you did. To be a trite versus being contrite, a trite means to be regretful of one's wrongdoing merely due to fear of punishment. Every one of you who has kids understands the definition of this word. Right? I don't know how many times my boys get caught doing something stupid. And they're not sorry they did something stupid. They're sorry I saw them doing something stupid. Right? That, that's the idea here. Right? And this is probably Simon's heart here. He wasn't sorry that he sinned against God. He was sorry that he got called out for it. Now, in a group this size, statistically speaking, undoubtedly, there are some of us who fall into that category. There are some of us who come to church, we've been baptized, we say the right things, but we don't really know the Lord. There are some of us who are not really broken of our sin. We're just sad we got caught. And, and, and as we see here in the case of Simon, he wasn't saved, but he wasn't beyond salvation either. He didn't know the Lord yet. His conversion experience wasn't genuine. But that didn't mean that he couldn't still have a genuine conversion experience. Because Peter tells him in verse 22, repent therefore. Obviously, if Peter tells him to repent, repentance was possible for him, right? He says, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours. And pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness. And in the bond of iniquity. Peter says, look, Simon, you need to repent. Look, Simon, you need to get right with God. Simon, you need to be forgiven of your sins. Simon, you need to be set free from the root of bitterness in your heart. You need to be set free from the, from the bonds of iniquity, Simon. You need to be set free from the chains of sin that are holding you down. And Simon answered, verse 24, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing that you have said may come upon me. Simon says, Philip or Peter, pray that God doesn't judge me. Pray that I don't fall under the wrath of God. And again, I don't know Simon's heart here, but this seems like an example of attrition, not contrition. There's no sorrow over what he had done. He just doesn't want to face God's wrath. And Scripture doesn't tell us the end result. Scripture doesn't tell us what happened to Simon. But, <coughs> excuse me, 
church history tells us that Simon goes on to found Gnosticism. And as you may know, Gnosticism was a, was a, a heretical cult that took parts of Christianity and parts of, of Greek mysticism and they really made their own little religion. And, you know, we all, we've all read in the Gospels, we've all heard the parable of the Good Samaritan. Here we see the, the story of the Bad Samaritan. Wait, the Samaritan who, who didn't do the right thing. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now the, the grammar's a little funny there. But what happened is this. They stayed in Samaria for a while, and they continued going from village to village, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And people were getting saved. And things were happening. When we, as believers, share the gospel, there's, there's only a, a small number of possible responses. Sometimes you share the gospel with people, and they just outright reject it. You know, I, I don't want to hear that. I reject it. I don't believe in God. Go away. And there are some people who, who hear the gospel message and they receive it for a little while. But that gospel message, it never really takes root in their hearts. It's just sort of a superficial thing. They believe the facts of the gospel. But they don't have that faith that produces salvation. And here we see two responses to the same gospel message. We see the Samaritan's response and we see Simon's response. One is a, is a genuine response to the gospel. People are convicted of their sin. They hear the gospel message and they believe that they're sinners and they believe that Jesus died to pay for their sins. And they receive the, the gospel with great joy and, and they believe it. And they begin to live the gospel. And the other response is, cool, what can I get from it? There's no repentance. There's no genuine repentance. There's no sorrow over their sin. There's no real desire to know the Lord and grow in Him. There's just the desire to get what you can and to escape divine punishment. And here's the thing. You have a spiritual response, and then you have this fleshly response. A response that isn't leading to salvation. A, a response that doesn't produce a saving faith. But both of those responses, they can look similar on the outside sometimes, can't they? You can't always tell the difference between a a genuine convert, and a, and a false convert. And eventually you'll be able to tell. Eventually the fruit of their life will reveal the, the reality of their situation. It'll reveal the reality of their salvation. But the good news is this. First of all, we don't have to be that. The Lord is that judge. We don't have to make that call. right? The Lord is the one who's eventually going to separate the, the, the wheat from the tares. But the second thing, and this is the good news, you get to pick. You get to pick what group you're in. 
You get to pick what team you're on. And if you this morning find yourself in the second group, if you've never genuinely given your life to the Lord, if you've never been born again, as Scripture says, you can switch teams. You can call out to the Lord and you can repent of your sins and be saved. You can cry out and say, Lord, I'm, I'm a sinner. I, I'm hopeless. I'm helpless. I'm, I'm lost without you. I'm in bondage to sin. Lord, forgive me and save me and set me free. Receive me into your family, Lord. And, and it really is that simple. The gospel message is that simple. What do you have to do to be saved? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And he goes on in verse 13 of that same chapter. And he says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. you've never done that, or if you've only made a, a superficial confession of faith, I encourage you today to repent, to turn from your sin, to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Lord. We thank you for the amazing examples you give us in Scripture, both positive and negative examples, Lord, that we could learn from here. And Father, we pray that you would help us to exercise wisdom and, and to learn from other people's mistakes, Lord, and, and see the mistakes that Simon made. And if we're repeating those same mistakes, Lord, convict us of our sins and, and draw us to you. We pray that in your name.